Hello and welcome to the seventh in a series of podcasts to promote the Reintroduction and Rewilding Summit, which will be held online on the 10th of April this year. The summit is run by the Birds of Pool Harbour, the charity dedicated to educating people on the stunning variety of bird life found in one of the country's most picturesque locations, and the Self-Isolating Bird Club a virtual space for wildlife watchers and enthusiasts set up by broadcasters Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin. My name is Charlie Moores and in our last episode I spoke with the acclaimed conservationists Roy Dennis MBE and Dr Tim McCrill of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation. We discussed their remarkable work on the Isle of Wight white-tailed eagle project which was launched with the release of six birds in August 2019. Advances in technology, discussed changing attitudes to raptor reintroductions in general, and of course, rewilding. Today, I'm talking with award-winning author Isabella, or Izzy Tree, who with her husband, the conservationist Charlie Burrell, set up a pioneering and now world-renowned rewilding project at their home in West Sussex the Nep estate. Nep was intensively farmed and biologically impoverished, but 20 years ago, Izzy and Charlie decided to stop what they were doing and, both metaphorically and physically, change the landscape forever. Never since, they've been devoted to the pioneering Nep Wildland Project. Using grazing animals as the drivers of habitat creation and with the restoration of dynamic natural watercourses, their project has seen extraordinary increases in biodiversity. Bucking national trends of long-term serious decline, species like turtle dove, nightingale and cuckoo now breed at Nep amongst rocketing numbers of purple emperor butterflies, dung beetles and dragonflies. Soils are alive again, and the dawn chorus apparently has to be heard to be believed. The rewilding of Nep is a template for hope, a story of optimism and astonishing change created initially by doing, well, by doing almost nothing and just letting nature take over. And it's a story that is beautifully told in Izzy's joyful book, Wilding, The Return of Nature to a British Farm. So much to talk about in so little time, though we do cover a fair amount from the delights of thorny scrub and creating connectivity to the first white storks to breed in Britain for more than 600 years. But first though, I explained to Izzy that in this series of podcasts, I'd so far been speaking with people who are running specific introductions or campaigns, and that she would be the first rewilding landowner I'd spoken with. Now, asking her to summarise 20 years of hard work and adventure in a few minutes wouldn't really be fair, but I wondered, could she summarise the last 20 years of hard work and adventure in a few minutes just to get us started, please? <laughs> yes, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, really, you know, when we talk about hard work, the wonderful thing about rewilding is that um, a lot of it is just sitting back on your hands and doing nothing. Um, that's the sort of hardest thing, I think, for human beings, us kind of workaholics to to do sometimes is just to sit back and, and let nature take its course. Resisting interventions is the phrase I think you use. <laughs> yes. 
So, I mean, really, the, the hard work, the, 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 the tough moment was really, and this is really down to my husband, Charlie, was the decision to rewild in the beginning. Um, you know, we were intensive arable and dairy farm on 3,500 acres of heavy Sussex wheeled clay, which anyone who's familiar with this part of the world will know is absolute hell to farm. We'd been farming it for about 17 years and making no headway at all, um, despite kind of doing all the efficiencies and investments and everything we possibly could do. And I think Charlie just realised by 1999, with a one and a half million pound overdraft, that um, farming on our land really wasn't going to work. And with the prospect of the reshaking of farm subsidies coming at us down the line sooner, if not rather than later, you know, we had to do something different. I think it quite often it surprises people when, you know, I describe how the decision was made to rewild. The primary mover was actually financial. If farming had been profitable for us, we probably would still be doing it. And for us now, 20 years on, having had this incredible journey, you know, that's quite shocking to see that we would still be treating our land in the same way if this kind of epiphany hadn't happened, if we hadn't allowed ourselves to, to look at the land differently. So really, that was the toughest moment, was, was making the change. And once we'd actually drawn a line underneath farming and realised that we were going to stop doing that and try something else, it was unbelievably freeing, yeah. not just because it took the financial burden off our shoulders, which I think had been weighing down, certainly been weighing down Charlie for a very long time, but it allowed us to think outside the box and to maybe stand back and look at our enterprise, our land holding, and, and think, what could we be doing and where had we been going so wrong? So the idea of, of rewilding was... You know, we were on incredibly depleted land by this stage. You know, it wasn't notable for nature in any way. I mean, I think there yeah. are a few interesting birds on the lake. So it wasn't obviously somewhere that any NGO would be interested in from a nature point of view. <laughs> so trying to pull the glider back into the sky, trying to get dynamic processes happening on our land again was going to be quite a challenge but the way forward, it seemed to us, was when we met Franz Vera, who is this sort of really pioneering force in Europe. He's a, a Dutch ecologist. And his book, um, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, just happened to come out in English in the same year that we had our, our sale when we sold all our, our lovely three dairy herds and all our farm machinery and cleared our debts. And suddenly we were free to explore his ideas. And then we met him. And what he was essentially saying was that you know, in all our imaginings of what our landscape would have looked like before human impact, we've completely forgotten about the huge numbers of free-roaming animals that would have been in our landscape. So aurochs, bison, tarpan, wild boar, beavers by the million, elk, reindeer possibly, red deer, all these animals would have been driving the system, interacting with vegetation, with trees, with thorny scrub, um, with the soil, with watercourses. And their disturbance, their impact, would have created a much more dynamic, complex kaleidoscope of hab habitats, something much more open than the closed canopy forests we tend to have in our heads when we think about exactly, what was here. Yeah, That's something I've come to understand reading your book and others on rewilding, Is that, that this idea that I grew up with, that Britain was a huge closed forest before man arrived, 
it isn't accurate because it it overlooks the way all those herbivores that you just listed would actually have created something far more varied and far more open. Yeah, and uh, you know we have this sort of myth in our heads, a rather Hansel and Gretel myth, and yeah. dare I say it, also sort of slightly driven by kind of Freudian, you know, overtones of sort of man coming in wielding his axe and chopping down the trees and sowing his seed in the fertile virgin soil you know there's a lot of that going I've on I've never heard that put as Freudian before but now you've said it <laughs> and I think I get you know it. um you know we tend to think when we look at our very fragmented very depleted landscapes there's a tendency to think of verdant luxuriant primal forest you know like the Amazon uh, as yeah. being the go-to solution for nature but in temperate zone Europe, that really wasn't the case. You would have certainly have had forested closed canopy areas in, in some places and certainly on inaccessible steep slo- slopes or yeah. um, areas that free roaming animals couldn't get to. But once you really see the dynamics of what would have been here, it would have been much more like the Serengeti or somewhere in Africa. You know, you'd have had super herds of, of aurochs, the, the, the original cow um, and tarpan, um, you'd have had huge herds of bison. In Romania and, and the Netherlands, where they're using bison in rewilding projects now, they're known as chainsaws on legs <laughs> yeah. because they're incredibly efficient at getting rid of trees in, in the winter. So, you know, there would have been a very dynamic battle between free-roaming megafauna and vegetation succession. And yeah. that's where the interest is in in that kind of complexity that kicks off when you have two forces battling it out together. Reading your book, Izzy, there's a kind of astonishment about what happened on your land. You've been doing this for a long time now. You've seen so many changes. Do you still feel that astonishment? Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, when we began, we we had a, a very broad brushstroke kind of idea of what, what we hoped would happen. We you know, rewilding isn't about setting targets or goals. It's just about letting the natural processes happen and waiting to see what turns up. So, you know, our expectations were were very low. We we had no idea if our land could ever sustain, you know, really exciting wildlife again. Yet five or six years in, we started to see breeding nightingales and turtle doves. We never had a record of turtle doves on net before. And we've now got probably the densest population, which isn't saying much because it's one of the species about to go extinct from our shores. But we've probably got the the highest number of breeding turtle doves in Britain on there. I mean, it's it's astonishing. We had a, a songbird survey last year, which suggests that we may have the densest population of breeding songbirds in Britain. Really? And I didn't know so that. That's fantastic. Literally from zero to hero. We could never have imagined it in less than 20 <laughs> yeah. years. And... Um... I'm just going to say, especially when you're talking there about turtle doves, and you've mentioned this before, but it's thorny scrub. That's been the key to bringing back biodiversity. Absolutely. That, that is the missing ingredient, I think, in, in, in our landscapes today. We have zero tolerance for thorny scrub. You know, people look at it and, and think wasteland, you know, it's good for nothing. And I think even, you know, in conservation areas and nature reserves, uh, you know, volunteers go in at weekends scrub bashing. Yeah, We've forgotten how how hugely important it is for for wildlife i mean it's it's protection from predation it's berries it's seeds it's nectar 
it's a resource for everything from insects to small mammals to, to birds. And then, of course, the predators that follow them. So it's probably the most biodiverse habitat we have, and yet we try our best to eradicate it wherever it pops up. So the places where thorny scrub survives are, you know, on railway sidings and brownfield sites. And so those have become some of our most valuable places for for nature. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so ironic, you know, brown is the new green. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, that's certainly one thing I think we've, we've learned from NEP is, you know, if we're going to get biodiversity back, if we're going to do something really positive for our landscape and our wildlife and all the, you know, the systems that, that spin off from that, then we have to change our view about what our landscape looks like. We've got to learn to tolerate thorny scrub again. Yeah. And that's a, a big ask from an aesthetic point of view when we've grown up with such a tidy, managed picture postcard of what our landscape should look like. I'm glad you mentioned aesthetics, Izzy, because that's something I wanted to discuss. In your, your wonderful book, Wilding, you mentioned the reaction of your neighbours to the messy environment that you were creating at NEP. You know, the appearance of ragwort and creeping thistles and, and all that delicious thorny scrub. Has that changed over the last few years? Is he, do, do they see the benefits to biodiversity of a messy environment now? Yeah, I, I think some people find it easier to to take on board than others. Um, you know, if you're if it's really been ingrained in you, um, you know, from a very early age and uh, you know, sometimes it's quite difficult to to change that mindset. Um, you know, just looking back at my childhood, I was I grew up in Dorset, and you know, I, I spent you know happy you know years of my life walking on the South Downs. And if I saw them yeah. scrub up, you know, it would part of me, even though I know how unnatural they are at the moment and how good it would be for nature. Part of me is nostalgically tied to a, a landscape that I grew up with. So it's, it is a big challenge. But I think when you see the benefits, and I think that's what's happening locally around us, when um, people who walk the footpaths now hear this kind of wall of birdsong in the spring and are beginning to see really interesting birds out there from nightjars to nightingales to well white storks now to you know great e great white egrets whatever suddenly i think you know there's an openness that comes yeah and also of course i think in the very early days you know especially if you've got a conversion like our land in the southern part of the estate was straight from arable we had open arable fields just stubble left after the last harvest and so then the succession of thorny scrub, of hawthorn, blackthorn, bramble, and of course, lovely ragwort and, um, and creeping thistle and everything else, <laughs> it comes in like crazy. And so it's a real shock to the system how quickly it establishes. It's much, much slower if it's on permanent pasture or, or, or grassland that, that you're letting revert. Yeah. So when you see a very dramatic change in two or three years, I think that's that's quite a challenge too um, when you're looking over the garden fence. Yeah. You know, eventually now, I mean, that <clears throat> that change has sort of slowed down. It's still very shifting and very dynamic as a habitat, but it's not quite so, you know, in your face. And and so I think now, you know, that fear factor has kind of gone. It's not changing so quickly and people 
have begun to accept it more readily. Was part of the problem for your neighbours a concern that, that the mess would escape from NEP? You know, that it, it couldn't be contained, that their land would become thorny scrub too? Or was it more that this was simply not what you did with farmland that, that should, in quotes, be used to grow food? There was a little bit of, of nervousness, I think, that, you know, the, the injurious weeds um, would spread. That's actually <clears throat> mostly kind of bad science, actually. Uh, you know, there's lots of studies say that, you know, ragwort seed is actually pretty unviable, more than about 10, 10 metres from the plant. And it's usually just coming up from the seedbed. Yeah. Um, but even so, we keep about 50 metres of our boundary inside the the deer fence um, topped so that you don't get thistle down blowing into gardens and that kind of thing. So I think that measure certainly sort of assuaged the concerns of people, uh, you know, concerned about weeds drifting into their gardens. I think it really was just a question of aesthetics. And, but also, you know, that, that was this the right thing to be doing with land? Um, There was a lot of concern that, you know, what we were doing was irresponsible or lazy. And some people even said it was unpatriotic. We had a lot of letters, <laughs> your sincerely disgusted letters written in the early days. Yes, yeah, I remember reading <laughs> of them. Um, but I think one concern, which is a real concern, is is that of food production. And, um, you know, I think there's a, a perception out there that, you know, still goes back to the Dig for Victory campaign, where every inch of land ought to be under food production, intensive food production. And that really isn't the case anymore. Um, farming has moved on um, for the good, for the better and for the worse. But we're, we, we've got, we're feeding a population now of 10 billion globally. Um, uh, and uh, uh, we are wasting 30% of the food we produce. So we're, we're, we're a global point, yeah. population, I think, of yeah. 7.5 now. Um, so we've got to address food waste for a start. But we are also producing more food than ever off less land than ever. I think there's 30 million hectares of land being abandoned in in Europe because marginal farms are are coming out of production. So this idea that every piece of land has to be under full production really is a sort of misconception. I think what we're also keen to to express is that you know that that rewilding isn't isn't about rewilding the whole of Britain. We'll always need prime land for agriculture, for producing food intensively for people. We'll need land for housing. We'll need infrastructure and the rest. Rewilding really, I think, is a way of connecting our existing nature reserves, our our, our Noah's arks, where where species are clinging on to existence allowing them to connect together again so that populations become viable. And particularly in the face of climate change, I think, you know, if we carry on at the rate of global warming that we have at the moment, the conditions we have at net now will be in Northumberland in five years' time. So how how are species going to respond to that if they can't move? Um, There's lots of species, of course, like birds and insects that can, but many can't and they are doomed to fail um, if we don't join up our, our countryside. That's one of the reasons I was asking about your neighbours, because while NEP is larger than some 
small nature reserves. It's not a huge area and it is isolated. It's surrounded by main roads and, and other landowners. It's, it's almost an island at the moment. There was certainly no connectivity with local farms. And I was wondering, has that changed now? Are other farms thinking, you know, why don't we get involved with this? It's not going to do the harm that we were originally concerned about. Yeah, it's so exciting because I, I think literally in the last three or four years, um, the, the, the whole, literally the whole landscape has changed um, in, in, in our heads, I think, because, um, you know, partly because of the whole um, subsidy shakeup and because now, you know, the policymakers are looking to change the way they reward land managers and farmers for their use of the land. So that's been a huge game changer. If if now what's being factored in is how you improve your soils, how you improve improve water quality, flood mitigation, air quality, biodiversity and the rest of it, then that enables farmers and land managers to, to really think dynamically about how to use their land as well as perhaps produce food. Yeah. So we're a, a founder member of our local farm cluster for the, the um, Upper Ada Farm Group. And there's 30 or 40 farmers now joined up to that, which is astonishing. Oh, really? Um, I don't think That's any of great. them are going to rewild. Um, what is being discussed is, is how, how to connect um, ancient woodland together, how to reconnect hedgerows, how to use catchment areas of rivers and streams to make corridors. You know, why continue to farm that boggy patch of your field, which was never productive anyway? Perhaps allow it to return to bog. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's really exciting things. And then we are talking to very early stages, but with land um, managers and owners between us and the sea and also hoping to um, generate a corridor north from us. So really kind of becoming an octopus and reaching out in all different right. directions and maybe one day connect with the Ashdown Forest. Really? So, But there's the willingness there amongst land managers, which is never... Uh, you know, we wouldn't have seen, I, I don't think, 10 or 15 years ago. It's really, really exciting. I mean, this is perhaps slightly unfair to ask, <laughs> but do you think that you and Nep were just in exactly the right place at the right time? Or or have you sort of led where other landowners are now following? Um, I I think it was just good timing, I'd say. I mean, I think Charlie, my husband's decision to stop farming, I think, was was looking back on it, very brave and prescient because mm. I think he, it was going against the grain, <laughs> get another pun, but that was going yeah. against very much his family's tradition. And, you know, I think a lot of them were quite dismayed when we said we'd give up farming. Um, but I think he really saw that, that this wasn't the way forward and that things were going to change dramatically. But I think, you know, if, if, if Wilding had been written six years ago, I, I don't think it would have gone anywhere when it was published three years ago it hit that moment when I think there was a groundswell of change in people's thinking we'd had Extinction Rebellion David Attenborough on plastics um, we'd had Greta Thunberg and desperate kind of headlines about climate change and I think suddenly people the public were feeling eco-anxiety Really yeah. feeling it, yeah, and and Definitely. and want and feeling that actually the our governments weren't doing anything fast enough, and that we were also being hamstrung by big corporations or by the the food and farming industries. That the big corporations were 
wanting to maintain the status quo. And the only way to change was this grassroots revolution, really. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah, that's really why I asked the question, is because that's how exactly how it feels to me. You know, I can't claim to be a conservationist, but I've been very interested for a, a, a very long time. And there just does seem to be a sea change happening about now. And yeah. I hope it's permanent and it is real and it is actually happening. But I think, it, I think it is to do with these reports and eco-anxiety and people understanding that we, we are losing so very, very much. And I almost think now that sometimes the message that rewilding is about restoring biodiversity has, has got lost in arguments about should we bring back the lynx, should we bring back the wolves. We're bringing back many, many, many different taxa from the big to the small. How difficult is it to keep that part of, of the rewilding message alive? Well, I, I think it, it, it has shifted very much from when, when we started doing this and, you know, when our project started being described as rewilding, um, that sent alarm bells in most people's heads because they did, as you say, associate it with, with wolves and bears. You know, as you say, they really are the icing on the cake. We, we, we can't have wolves and bears back yet I hope we will one day, but that, yeah. I think, will be a decision for our grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Yeah, I think we're talking many, many decades. <laughs> yeah, once once we have a landscape that is functioning again, that is truly connected with really big wild areas again, and the food resources, the prey species for those animals to to survive off, then we can make the decisions about, about wolves and bears. I think lynx is a very, very real prospect. Um, lynx yeah. would, wouldn't be a problem. They're stealth predator. They predate on roe deer, of which we've got numerous. I think more more roe deer in in Britain now than we had five thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, but they would need huge areas, so it probably would be Scotland or you know Kilda or somewhere like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think um, what's happening with this shift in in thinking about ecosystem services and and payments for public goods and and all of that is that rewilding does provide so many other benefits. And that's something we hadn't appreciated at all at the start. You know, we were just thinking of improving wildlife conditions for wildlife. But of course, it's all connected. And what's tied up with that is, you know, flood mitigation effects. I mean, now our land is acting like a sponge and it's holding back water from downstream. So properties downstream from us don't flood in big rains anymore. We've got be- much better water quality. We're, we're actually, we think, purifying water that comes onto our land from farmland or roads around us. The soils and the bacteria in the soils and the vegetation itself are, is actually cleaning the water. Um, and then, of course, you've got this you know, very important factor of, of cleaning air. And we know how expensive it is for the NHS to, to cope with this pandemic we have of, of people in cities suffering from... from um, lung problems and and the like because of pollution. So I think rewilding, it it does provide all these other services, which we are just beginning to place a value on and realise that, you know, having a fully functioning ecosystem is actually supporting all our our life support systems too. And I I know you've been talking about soil health recently, rewilding or ecological restoration, whatever you want to call it. It's not just about benefits to wildlife and benefits to us, but it's crucial for soil health as well. Absolutely. I, mean, I think wildlife is, is a very good indicator. I think if you've got increasing biodiversity, that's the surest indication, that almost the, the easiest thing to measure. But that shows you that your soils 
are improving that they're back in good heart i mean yeah. our soils we we you know we've done some some tests recently and we've doubled our soil carbon content so we're sequestering carbon whereas before we were you know a, a massive carbon emitter on when we were plowing and 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 all the the carbon inputs we were using so you know it, it, that's a huge turnaround if you can go to being a carbon sink from being an emitter um, yeah, yeah. Massive, yeah, massively important for for, for for our climate change targets. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about how you see the spirit of rewilding changing? Because I got the the impression from your book that it was almost freewheeling that you had to let go. I mean, it was so inspiring. I was thinking that that's just amazing for landowners to sit back and let go. Is there a danger that in the future rewilders are going to look at what you've done and they're going to try to do a nap? So they're going to want to have turtle doves or they're going to want to have purple emperor butterflies and they're going to miss out on that unknown factor, that unplanned factor, which was just so uh, revelatory about what happened at NEP. Well, I think that's exactly it. That's the difference between conventional conservation, which is very target driven. So you would create, as it were, or sustain or, or manage habitat for the benefit of turtle doves or, or nightingales and, and, and try and optimise it and not allow it to change. You know, I think rewilding is all about just allowing those natural processes to happen. And it may be that we, we start losing turtle doves. You know, our, our, our habitats may start shifting and may not be so conducive for breeding turtle doves and nightingales. We just don't know. But across the board, biodiversity is rocketing. And so I think the way to look at rewilding is all about a sense of scale. Um, and, and quite often people say, well, how much land do you have to have in order to rewild? Yeah. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. It's, it's almost like you, there's a spectrum. You know, one end of the scale, you've got the great wildernesses like Yellowstone National Park or the Chernobyl Exclusion <laughs> Zone or Alaska or yeah, wherever. Sure. And at the smallest end, you've got your tiny little Noah's arcs of, you know, um, nature reserves, which could be a hectare, 10 hectares, you know, tiny, as you say, you know, the, the little field that is protecting a, a, a rare orchid. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And at that end of the scale, you're going to need to, to, if you're wanting to keep those species surviving, you're going to have to manage very carefully and very, in a very managed and controlled way. So NEP is somewhere in the middle where, you know, we're, we're not big enough to have anywhere big enough to have apex predators. Um, we have to control the numbers of our free roaming animals. We don't have a big enough area like Yellowstone to allow them to proliferate and let nature's boom and bust scenarios take care of the of the populations. We we have to cull the animals. That's our main intervention. Yeah. So we are still managing to a degree, but everything else we try and just take our hands off the steering wheel. So the smaller you are, the more you, you have to manage and the bigger you are, the less you have to manage. But if you're small, then I think the ambition should always be to get wilder. And the way to do that is to connect. You know, we were just talking about nature corridors, yeah. but the way that NEP is going to get wilder and further down that rewilding spectrum is to join forces with our neighbours, is to create corridors and free moving populations of of species again. Even if you're a garden, you can do do it at that scale. You know, if you 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 may manage your garden beautifully for 
pollinating insects, but you can have an exponential effect if you persuade all the people in your street to have a hedgehog yeah, tunnel um, and to have different little habitats in their own garden. So perhaps a beetle bank in one or a pond in another. Suddenly that back, that row of back gardens becomes a really functioning n natural corridor, which can be used by all sorts of species. Um, and that's that you're beginning then to get dynamism back. And I, I think that's, that's really one big thing that rewilding is all about. It, it's connecting and getting, getting, getting um, processes to function at, at landscape scale again. I guess I'm asking, Izzy, because um, I gather you're writing a book about how to rewild. Have I got that wrong? No, you haven't got it wrong, no. It's called The Wilding Handbook, um, right. but it is, it's proving quite a challenge. <laughs> well, that, that's the reason that, that it got me thinking how rewilding might look in the future, that people might be tempted to try and organise rewilding and we end up in the same position that we are now with people trying to hit biodiversity targets very small areas being managed for specific species. So I wondered whether there was there was almost a formalization of rewilding taking place and how that might affect what what I considered to be this freewheeling spirit. I think that's probably something that rewilding is always going to have to push back on. I mean there I think there will always will be a, a sort of process where whereby people want want to formalize what rewilding is and and put it in a box. And that's the very difficult thing to get your head around, that there isn't a box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> you know, so, so you've just got to completely let go. But as I say, I think, you know, that there is this spectrum effect. So, you know, you are going to have to manage certain areas more closely than others. But I think it, it's really keeping alive that idea that nature knows best. And that, that is, um, it's to do, I think, to be honest, it's to do with a sort of humility too often in our kind of mechanical mind, certainly westernized mind anyway, we, we think we know better and nature needs a helping hand. You know, we just look at getting trees back in our landscape. Our instinct is to get spades and propagate trees in nurseries, huge expense, huge carbon cost, risk of disease, producing trees that have very poor genetic diversity, you know, that are very likely to fail and produce closed canopy woodland that is very poor for species, that's not hugely enjoyable for humans. You know, what are we doing? We're just creating forestry plantations. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas nature, if we allow natural regeneration, nature knows how to do it. It knows how to create trees that can look after themselves, that can respond to climate change and disease and pollution, that can that can produce extraordinary biodiversity. So I think we're, we're beginning to get it. Um, but we're, it means, I think, having, in a sense, to, to accept that, you know, for a century or more, we have, or perhaps even since the Enlightenment, <laughs> we've gone down the wrong route. And I think I've, I just, you know, guest edited a, a, an edition of Granta magazine um, called Second Nature, uh -huh. where, you know, to my mind, the, the greatest writers and, and academics who, who really know about this stuff produced essays for it. Uh, which was very exciting, talking about natural regeneration, about regen ag, regenerative agriculture, and megafauna, all those sorts of things. But I was really keen that um, indigenous voices should be heard too, because, of course, we think that we are living unsustainably, but actually there are 
populations, civilizations all over the world who have lived sustainably with nature for thousands of years. And they know how to do it. They have a mindset that understands how nature works and how to live with it. And I think we really need to take a, a, a leaf out of, out of their book. Yeah, I guess providing we remain conscious that it's easy to lapse back into old habits, the Izzy and Charlie spirit will fly free. <laughs> I really I really hope so. Um, you were mentioning there about um, writers and things. Um, there, was a, there was a question I really wanted to ask you. You know, um, there's a game sometimes people play where you imagine who you would invite to a dinner party if you could ask absolutely anyone. I kind of feel that, that Net must be like that fantasy dinner party, but in real life and going on and on for months. I mean, the conversations you must have had in the last 20 years, inspiring would be too small a word, I should imagine. It is amazing. I mean, you never know who's going to walk through the door. I mean, not many people have walked through the door in the last year. But it, the, the the extraordinary sort of knowledge um, from Ted Green, who just made us look at trees at, you yeah. know, in a completely different way. It was Ted Green, um, wasn't it? I, we've apologies had... for interrupting, Izzy. But it was Ted Green that kicked off the whole net project, wasn't it, when he looked at the the health of some of your ancient oaks? Yeah, it was Ted pointing out that the oak trees in what had been the Repton Park around the house that we'd been merrily ploughing up, you know, underneath right up to their trunks, you know, and, and soaking in, in chemicals were suffering because of what we were doing. It just hadn't even occurred to us. And yeah. we suddenly then began to look at the soil in a completely different way, what we were actually doing to the soil and all these, these underground systems that the trees were depending on. So, yeah, I mean, every every week, every month we have people who come to NEP who share their knowledge and it's really, really exciting. And, you know, from where we're sitting, it's, it is a very hopeful place to be. It really feels exciting, yeah. How inspiring are the young people that are taking part in those conversations? Oh, I think totally brilliant. I mean, I think, I think the younger generation completely get it. Um, in the very early days, we... We, we used to take tractor and trailer rides um, to really try and, and, and show particularly the local, you know, our neighbours what, what was happening here. And, you know, the, 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 the difficult minds to change were the people our age who, you know, had grown up or, or perhaps a bit older thinking of the Green Revolution, so-called, you know, of farming as a solution to everything. Um, but it was the really old guys who I suppose when we saw them in say the 2000s were in their 80s and 90s who could remember what NEP was like before the war who completely got it completely yeah, understood yeah. it and they said oh, I hadn't heard haven't heard nightingales or skylarks since I was a boy and there used to be partridges in every field you know they remembered a different baseline exactly. but it was also the younger ones the younger generation who don't have this burden of feeling that that every inch should be ploughed and who have a much better sense of the sort of environmental crisis and the responsibility of doing something now. So I, I feel sorry for them in a way because of that there is so much to do and the battle has only just begun. And there are so many vested interests in maintaining the status quo. I mean, a bit like alternative energy and fossil fuels, you know, we know now the writing is on the wall, but 20 years ago, you know, it was difficult to see that alternative energy would win. And now I think the same is happening for rewilding and regenerative agriculture. It is coming, but wouldn't it be great if it could come quicker? 
Yes, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just? Perhaps this is another unfair question, Izzy, but where are the main sticking points still, do you think? Or perhaps who are the main sticking points? Well, I, I, I think it, it is, you know, just to be vague, but I think it is the food and farming industry in a way. There's a massive vested interests in carrying on selling chemicals, selling huge yeah. machinery for farms and to f- keep on feeding grain to, to livestock. So that is going to be really, really hard to break. But I think the younger generations are are on it. It is going to gather pace now. And I think we are going to feel very quickly, I think we're going to feel ashamed of walking down the street with a with a takeaway coffee with a plastic lid on it. You know, I think yeah. it is happening, I think. Yeah, we really need a, a cultural change right through society, don't we? And rewilding just has to be a part of that. It's not it's not a total answer. Of course it isn't. But, but all these changes in our behaviour, what we eat, how we treat the environment, how we live our lives, really, they are all linked. I think that's right. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's, uh, that's what I think rewilding has, has probably taught us over the last 20 years, Charlie and me, that is that everything is connected. And, yeah, you yeah. know, that, that it, it's all so closely interwoven. Um, and rewilding, I think, just like anything, is a question of, of thinking differently and being free and open to new ideas and thinking holistically um, and and with with some humility, yeah. yeah. I think it's just a a different way of, of thinking, and and the word rewilding is being used in all sorts of contexts: rewilding yes, institutions, rewilding your gut biome, rewilding <laughs> yourself. You know, it's all about rewilding everything, I guess. <laughs> humility and hope. I mean, yes. it's it's such a hopeful thing, rewilding, and. Um, <laughs> the more that I've learned doing these interviews, the, the more I've spoken with inspiring people like yourself, I'm actually becoming quite upbeat, which, uh, <laughs> well, my wife would tell you that is a remarkable thing. It's <laughs> great um, to hear. I know we're running short of time, Izzy, but if I can ask you one more question. Uh, we're talking in mid-March. It's a little grey outside my window today, but the, um, the celandines and the primroses are out where I am. Spring is on the way to Nep as well. So what are you most looking forward to over the next few weeks? Oh, well, we've, we've, we've got our white storks, which have begun bill clattering yeah. on their That's nests. That's a fantastic success story, isn't it? That's just so, so exciting. And, and so, yeah, last year we had the first white storks to breed in Britain. At least the last recording, written recording of, of white storks nesting in Britain was 1416. So these amazing birds, they've begun their, their courtship displays, their bill clattering. We had one on the house yesterday. I'm still hopeful that one day they'll nest on our house. So <laughs> we're hoping they'll have better success even this year. And I look at them and I think, God, you know, one day, maybe they'll be nesting on St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Wouldn't that be amazing? And it would all have started at NEP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be quite an achievement, eh? Um, and of course... Migrants like cuckoos, nightingales, turtle doves, they're all headed your way oh. again. You'll be keeping your eyes and ears peeled for them as well, I guess. Well, that's always uh, always an anxious moment because the sort of the more you know as well, the more anxious making it gets because two years ago, we um, or three years ago, I think it was, we, we tagged, GPS tagged three cuckoos. And oh my God, we became completely <laughs> addicted to watching them on the, 
you know, watching their journey back to the sub-Saharan countries and what they were doing, and then they would disappear off the radar for a few weeks, and then they'd come back again. All three cuckoos made it back to NEP, almost to exactly the same point where they were tagged. It was astonishing. But, you know, every year we hope our nightingales come back in the same numbers. Their numbers haven't diminished um, over the last couple of years, where I think they have had a few poor years nationally. So we know we've got great habitat for them if they can get back here. But, you know, there's always storms on the way. There's endless sort of disruptions to their habitat in Africa. And you just feel, gosh, they've got so many mountains to climb. But they still manage to get here. And when they do, when we hear that first, it's cook- I think it's cuckoos first and then it's um, nightingales and then it's turtle doves. And when we hear them back, it, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. All that responsibility is waiting for your three cookies. (laughs) Izzy, thank you so much for your time today. I I can't imagine how busy you are setting everything up and, and of course, planning those amazing dinner parties. Oh, well, I can't wait till we can have a dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Thank you very much indeed. Um, Really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Charlie, thank you so much. Izzy Tree of the world-renowned NEP Estate and NEP Wildland Project, talking with me in mid-March. While Izzy is not scheduled to take part in the reintroduction and rewilding summit in April, we're delighted to announce that Charlie Burrell is. In the meantime, there is a wealth of information on NEP at nep.co.uk and Izzy herself is on Twitter at Isabella underscore tree and is online at isabellatree.com where you can find details of her new children's book, When We Went Wild. It just leaves me to say, as always, thank you very much for listening.